I wonder what is on your mind this afternoon. What is occupying your, your thought life as you sit there um, thinking about what you can think about instead of listening to me for the next half hour? Um, maybe, maybe it's uh, what formation are England going to play tonight? Um, maybe it's feeling a bit kind of apprehensive about what work looks like. Maybe you're, you're getting that, you're starting to get that Sunday evening feeling of like, I know I've got work in the morning, I wonder what the inbox is going to look like. And maybe it's other things you've got on this week. Maybe it's getting ready for Christmas and feeling terribly behind for all the absolutely essential things we need to do for Christmas. I don't, I don't know what is, what is on your mind right now, but this is what I want to ask you to do, okay? I, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, and what I want you to do is forget all those things I want, you to, I want you to instead empty your mind of all thoughts, um, and, na- and then I want you to fill it with this thought. I want you to imagine, put yourselves into the feet of, I want you to imagine you are a first century Christian, okay? So imagine, imagine it, come on, get, get your clothes on, whatever first century Christians would have worn. Um, decide, decide where it is you're living. I'm going to tell you where you're living. You're living in Antioch. Um, so you are a first century Christian living in Antioch. I want you to just think back. So we're in Roman times. If you're struggling to think what, what times, we're in the Roman times, um, where you are, you're a first century Christian now, and I want you to imagine what, what life would be like. Uh, and you're, you're not just any first century, you're not just any kind of Roman citizen, you are a, specifically a Christian, okay? So we're talking about, I don't know, AD 50 sort of time. You're a Christian, first century. Right? Have, you got this, have you got this image in your head? You're imagining yourself. I'm sure you're dashingly good-looking um, uh, and, and all those things. You've got, you've got your, your image of yourself as a first century Christian. Maybe, maybe, you, um, maybe if you cast your mind back a few years, so you're now AD 50, but maybe if you cast your mind back to AD 45, maybe at that point you weren't a Christian. So imagine what the last five years have involved for you. Maybe, maybe before that you were an Orthodox Jew. You know, you were, you were, a, member, you were a Jewish person going to the synagogue every week, not eating certain food, eating other food, mixing only with a certain set of people, um, following certain rules. Maybe that's who you were five years ago. Or, or maybe, maybe you're like, I don't want to have been an Orthodox Jew. Sounds not my, not my bag. I want to have been, I, I'm just going to imagine I was like a pagan. Well, I, I was a, a AD 45, five years before you are now, you weren't a Christian, you were a pagan, you worshipped Zeus or one of the other kind of Greek gods or one of any number of religions. Maybe that's the, the world and you were just going out there, doing that stuff, eating whatever you want, living, living the high life. Or, or maybe you're like, actually... I prefer to not really think of myself as a re- religious. So maybe, maybe five years previously, you, you weren't a Jew, you weren't a pagan. You were just like not fussed about any of that religious stuff. You were just getting on with your life, you know, just trying to go out, make some money, have a family, live a happy life. Like maybe that's who you were. Right, so you're building up this character in your head. You were a first century Christian. Five years ago, you were, I don't know, whatever you've decided, whatever of those you decide most fits the person that you want to be. But then, then, but then what happens? Well, a few Christians arrive in Antioch. They turn up, and they, they start talking about this Jesus bloke, uh, and you start hearing about it, and you, you get a bit interested, and you start hearing a few things. But you're still really confused. You're like, I don't know. It doesn't really sound like my thing. And then there's this big, big cheese turns up. This, like, one of the Christian leaders called Barnabas. He's come all the way from Jerusalem. He turns up in Antioch, and he starts telling, telling you about Jesus. Uh, and as you, uh, as you hear from him, you start thinking, oh, maybe there's something to this. And then Barnabas leaves, and when he comes back, it's not just him, it's this other like Christian celebrity called Paul, and he's rocked up as well. And so now you've got these two Christian bigwigs, Barnabas and Paul, and you're sat there, 
as a pagan or Orthodox Jew or not fussed about religious, whatever you decided you were, you're sat there and you're hearing about Jesus. And as you're hearing about it, slowly you realize you need the forgiveness that they're talking about. You, you feel guilty. You know you're guilty. You know that there's something broken inside you. You know that you need that forgiveness. And so you start getting drawn to Jesus from your pagan or Jewish or not fussed background. You start getting drawn to that, wanting that forgiveness. You realize that you need the new life that they're offering. You realize that you want to know God and that they're talking about where you can actually know him. You find comfort, you find purpose, you find a whole new family, you find a whole new way of life. In, in five years, your life has been completely turned upside down. Like, just, just completely. You're, you're, you, you are now a completely different person to who the person you were five years ago. You join the Antioch church, you learn more about Jesus, you experience his power in your life, you live for him, you serve him. This is who you now are, AD 50, in your imagination. I hope, unless you've gone back to the football formations. But fast forward a few years from that moment. Now it's AD 52. You're two years older, a little bit wiser, maybe have a beard, maybe not if you were female. Um, but you still love Jesus, and you know him better, and you're thankful for all he's done. But what you've experienced over these last two years is that not everyone thinks the same way that you do about Christianity. In fact, some people are incredibly hostile to it. Maybe if you're an Orthodox Jew, some of your old Orthodox Jewish friends have really taken against it. They'll have nothing to do with you now that you've become a Christian. And, and you've been hearing stories of this kind of extreme opposition. You've heard about Christians being uh, tortured, being imprisoned. You've even heard some stories of some Christians being killed. And then Paul and Barnabas, who've been away on a journey, they come back and they tell you, Paul tells you that at one point he went to a city, he was dragged out of the city, they flung stones at him, and they left him thinking he was dead. And so you've got to this point, AD 52, where you're a Christian, and being a Christian is great, you've found, you found God, you've found forgiveness, you've found joy, you've found purpose, you've found so many things in it, but it's also a little bit scary being a Christian. It, it, it's just scary. There's, there's opposition all around. You're hearing all these stories, and you're wondering, is there, is, there, is there a stone with your name on it? Is there a moment that this comes to you? Now, here's a question. Imagine that's you. Hopefully, hopefully you're there. You're in that situation. What is it that keeps you going as a Christian at that moment? What is it that stops you just packing it all in? Just going, I'd prefer people didn't throw stones at me. I don't think this Christianity thing's for me. What is it that keeps you going? What, what stops you giving in to fear? What stops you being paralyzed by the opposition? Well, normally, this is what I want to suggest keeps people going in situations like that. This is what keeps people going. When opposition is all around you, when you feel a little bit scared, people are hostile around you, this is what keeps you going. The camaraderie of others. That's what keeps people going in those situations. It's that sense of everybody else might hate us, but we're in this together. We're fighting this together. It, it, you create this kind of us versus them mentality. When people feel persecuted and, and oppressed, it's often that sense of we're in this together which gets them through. 
And you see that all around, whether it's, whether it's soldiers in the SAS, that sense of band of brothers, we're in this together. Yes, it's incredibly scary out there, but at least we've got each other and we're here and we're doing it together. That's what keeps you going. Whether it's a football team which feels like the whole world's against them, the sort of Alex Ferguson mentality. What is it that keeps you going? Well, it's that sense, they, everyone else might hate us, but we're doing this together. We're, we're all united around this. Whether it's, whether it's a church who's catching a whole load of flack from people outside of them, maybe from the press or from hostile people around them, what is it that keeps that church together? It's that sense of, well, we're in this together. And so, AD 52, you as the kind of first century Christian that you've just imagined yourself to be, you're, you're scared but you've at least got this group of people and you just feel so tight and so close and so together. And that's what keeps you going. That's what keeps you walking with Jesus. That's what keeps you living that life. It's that sense of everyone else might be against us, but we're together and we believe in what we're doing and we're going to be there for each other. But then, then comes Acts 15. If you are here last week, you saw the beginnings of the story of Acts 15. Because it starts with, there's some like disturbance within that group. You've got this group of people and you're really tight, but now people are falling out and people are disagreeing. People are arguing about, well, you need to get circumcised. Well, you can't eat that food. Well, you have to eat that food. And all that, that, that sense that you were all in it together is starting to evaporate. You're starting to feel like, oh, it's not just me against the world. We're not at this all together. I'm fighting one battle, they're fighting a different battle. And you suddenly start to feel not just scared, but a little bit isolated. You've lost that sense of camaraderie, that sense of togetherness. That thing that helped you to keep going. And so you started to lose that. There started to be divisions. It's now not just out there that there's problems. It's it's within the group. Uh, And then... Paul and Barnabas get involved, and they try and sort it all out. Great. Oh, isn't it great? We've got such great leaders. They go to Jerusalem. They have this meeting. They sort it all out. They get everyone together. Everyone comes back together. You've rebuilt the community. Great. We're now all united again. We know what we're going to do. This is who we are. Paul and Barnabas have sorted it out. They've brought the community together. But then, just as Paul and Barnabas sort out that crisis there is another crisis. And this time, the crisis is with Paul and Barnabas, the very people who you look up to, who you respect, who have brought the community together, who created this group of people who you feel so connected to and committed to. Now the problem's with them. Look with me at Acts 15, verse 36. Let me read it. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. 
So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in their numbers. What's happening now? You, you've, you, were, you were at it together. They've just rebuilt this community. You had all these people. But now your leaders, the people who you look up to, the people who have been so instrumental in forming this community that you love dearly, now they're falling out. Now they're having an argument. And this argument ends up being so significant that they go their separate ways. It's a complete sort of breakdown in the leadership. That you, you, if you didn't kind of follow it in the scene, let, let, let's just get our heads around what goes on here. We don't know much about the situation, but from what we know, you can imagine the conversation that happened. It happened something like this. Barnabas goes to Paul, and or Paul goes to Barnabas, not sure which. But one comes to the other and they say, I've had this great idea, right? What we should do is we should go to all those towns that we went around before, and we should visit the churches there. It'll be encouraging for us. We can encourage and build them up. It'll be a great time. We should do it. And the, and the other one, you know, Paul Obama says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let, let's, let's, let's map it out. So they start, they start planning their journey. Well, we'll go to this town first and then to this town, this town. We'll take this stuff with us. It'll maybe take us about however long they've planned out. This is how we're going to do it. And then they come to the point where they're like, right, great. Who's going to come with us? And Barnabas goes, oh, well, obviously John Mark's going to come with us. I mean, obviously, he's been so great. We've, we've loved having him with us. He's keen. I've already had a chat with him. He seems up for it. John Mark's going to come with us. And all of a sudden, Paul's like, wait, wait a minute. Have you, have you forgotten what happened in Pamphylia? I don't know what happened in Pamphylia, but, but I'm assuming that they do. Have you forgotten what happened in Pamphylia, the way he left us? He deserted us. We can't take him with us. He's already left us once. He'll just leave us again. It's too big a risk. Think of the disruption that would cause course we can't take John Mark with us. And then Barnabas comes back and goes, yeah, yeah, but come on, that was understandable, wasn't it? You understand why he left. He had to go and do X, Y, or Z. Or, or maybe Barnabas isn't saying that. He's saying, oh, no, but he's learned from that experience. He's a different person now. He's grown. You know, yeah, he did that in the past, and he shouldn't have done that, but he realizes that was the wrong thing to do. He's, he's seen the error of his ways. He's going to be different this time. And Paul does the classic, you know, no, I, I, just, I just don't think he is. Leopards can't change their spots, whatever it is. They have this discussion. And Paul is adamant. You can't take John Mark with you. He's not reliable. He'll cause more trouble than he's worth. But Barnabas is committed to it. Here's what I think is going on as we get to this bit of Acts. If, if chapter 14 of Acts is opposition from outside... Then chapter 15 is division inside. That's what's going on in the, in the kind of narrative of Acts at this point. In chapter 14, you get to see the opposition from people who aren't Christians, people who are opposed to Christianity. But in chapter 15, you start to see these problems emerging inside the community. Christians disagreeing about things, falling out. You start to see even the leaders beginning to fall out. Cast your, cast your mind back to your imaginary first century Christian that you have created in your mind. How are you feeling right about now? As Paul and Silas, I mean as Paul and Barnabas fall out, as they separate, as they go their separate ways, and you, you suddenly feel a bit less secure. You think this just seems so fragile now. Even the leaders are, can't agree. What chance do we have? I thought we were in this together. 
but we're clearly not because they can't even agree. The opposition outside starts to look a bit scarier because you haven't got everyone around you. We're just doing this together. You're unsure, like, where do you go from here? Is there any hope? Is, is the church in Antioch just going to crumble, crumble and die? Now, leaders disagreeing can be a real problem. One of the things we talk about in leadership meetings a lot is that if you were to look at a list of churches that fail, you know, church plants that don't survive, churches that collapse, if you were to look at those, high on the list of reasons that they failed would be that the leadership... Whoa, what just happened there? Um, (laughs) That's unexpected. Would be... High on the list would be um, that the leaders just fell out, that there was a split in the leadership. If you were to look at the, the church plants that don't survive, one of the primary reasons would be the leaders split. They can't get along. They, they fall out. And it just destroys the church. But here's what I want to suggest at this point. We need to understand that not all disagreements are the same. They're not all the same. Here's what I want to do for basically the rest of this afternoon. I'm going to create some hypothetical situations, uh, and I want you to see the different types of disagreements that Christians might have, and I want you to think, how are you going to navigate these different types of disagreements? Uh, let, let, let me give you a scenario to begin with. On, on Tuesday evening, so a few days ago, um, I called up to the Thompson's house. I, I called around. I, I got invited in, very kind of them. Uh, and as we, were, as we were chatting, I just got this sense that something wasn't right, that there was, there was something wrong in, in, in the house, but I couldn't quite work out what it was. You know, the feng shui was off. Um, there, was like some, there was some bad energy in the house. I was like, what, what's going on in this house? Why, why do I not feel comfortable here? I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was until I was invited into the living room. And as I went into the living room, I saw... A Christmas tree. <laughs> now, I don't know if you remember Tuesday last week, but I just want to let you in something. Tuesday last week was still November. <laughs> like, still November and a Christmas tree. And not just a Christmas tree, multiple decorations all the way around the room. I mean, maybe a Christmas tree you could overlook, but a room covered in, in Christmas decorations. I mean, what, what hope is there for the Thompsons? Now, my guess is, I am in a minority in this room. (laughs) My guess is that most of you are like, no, what's hope is that for the Parkers? Because as far as I can work out, most people in Grace Church think Christmas should begin as early as is physically possible, uh, and, and that's just the way it is. But the question is, can Grace Church survive Scott and I disagreeing on such a foundational issue as when it's okay to put Christmas decorations up? Like, is there still hope for Grace Church that our, our leadership will be able to function despite this? Uh, and and the, good, the good news is that after a little bit of counselling, I think we can. I think we've managed to work our way through the issue, uh, and I think Grace Church is going to survive, perhaps even, even stronger than before. Now, now, this is the first category of disagreements that I want you to uh, understand here, and it's this, entirely inconsequential. Just just stuff that that doesn't matter. Disagreements that are about taste and preference and personality. You know, Pepsi or Coke. Obviously Coke. 
Is Die Hard a Christmas film? Yes. Is it okay to have cake for breakfast? Not only okay, but absolutely delicious. You know, like, like, like these, these are issues that we may disagree on, but that are actually okay. They're just inconsequential. They, they, don't, they don't really matter in the big scheme of things. They're not going to make a difference. It's okay for us to have different opinions about these things, to, to behave in different ways, because they just don't really matter. That, that's the first category of disagreements. But, but I, wanna, I just want to say, not all disagreements are like that. I want you to imagine a different disagreement. Imagine I turn up at a leaders' meeting. Scott and, Scott and Mike, uh, Michael are there. And, and I tell them that I've been thinking about it, and I've decided that ultimately, I think all religions are basically the same. I mean, they, they all teach basically the same stuff. They teach some stuff about God, some stuff about living a good life, a bit of stuff about love and forgiveness. They're all basically the same thing. Like, like the, what, what's, the, what's the issue? And I think God will ultimately accept and forgive everyone, regardless of what they believe. What, what about that disagreement? Well, that is no longer inconsequential because it matters. Like, it matters which of those is true because it makes an entire difference to how you live your life, to where you find your confidence, to what you're telling other people. And it's also not simply a matter of preference. It's not just, a, well, that's just your opinion, man. It's like it's something different to that. And this is the second category, right and wrong. The Bible says there's such a, there are some things that are just issues of right and wrong, of sin and righteousness. Uh, and so in these, then you, you, you're getting down to the issues of, well, is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what God says? And it matters because what we teach about how we come to know God and the lives, the lives he created us to live, that matters. There are some disagreements which are about what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is untrue. Is Jesus God or is he a human teacher? He can't be both. Well, <laughs> he can't be only both. <laughs> Should have thought of better examples for that. <laughs> um, do, we, do we come to know God on the basis of what we've done or on the basis of what Jesus has done for us? If we're forgiven, is it okay for us just to live however we want? Does how we live matter if it's all about forgiveness? With these disagreements, you have to work out what is true and what is untrue. What is right and what is wrong. And you can't just accept and overlook those disagreements. You either need to agree on what is right, or you will inevitably not be able to work together in the same way because you believe fundamentally different things. Now, I just want to just spend a minute there to say, you might think that is like so obvious. Like, I understand that. I understand that there's a difference between decisions about eternity and decisions about what I have on my toast for breakfast. I understand that. You didn't, you didn't need to spell it out. But I think there is a problem in our society. And the problem comes because we either assume that all disagreements fall into category one, or we assume that all disagreements fall into category two. Let me try and explain. Category one, if we think that all disagreements are just inconsequential. I think there's a group of people who assume that every disagreement is just a matter of opinion. Just a matter of taste. Their mantra is, 
why can't we all just get along? Or can't we just agree to disagree? Now, in certain situations, that is exactly what we should do. We should learn to get along. We should agree to disagree. When it comes to Christmas decorations or a whole host of other lifestyle issues, we need to learn to get along despite our differences. But there are some things which we can't do that with. When it comes to ideas about who God is, how we come to know him, what kind of lives he calls us to live, that's not just a matter of opinion. We can't simply agree to disagree on those things because that's an issue of right and wrong, of sin and righteousness, and ultimately of consequence for both now and for eternity. You will, you will probably be able to think for yourself, do you tend to assume that everything is something that we should just overlook? You know, you think that, I think that, why can't we just get along? Is that, is that your natural response? Because I think there's, a, there's a, a whole host of people in our society who think that everything falls into that. The religion you are, well, we can just agree to disagree, can't we? Because it doesn't really matter. The morality we pursue, the things that we think are important, the things that we think bring joy in life. There's a whole host of our society that just thinks all of these things are just matters of opinion and we should just let people think whatever they think and want to think about them. But the Bible says not everything is a matter of opinion and taste and preference. Some things are a matter of right and wrong, of true and untrue. But there's also a group of people, I think, who assume that every disagreement is a category two issue. These are people who will argue about everything. These are people who will divide over every issue, only mixing with their own personal echo chamber, which agrees with them on everything from politics to diet to worship style to hobbies to lifestyle. Their, their mantra is, I can't believe that you could think that. Or, I couldn't be friends with someone like that. It's that attitude that dominates social media. So it's just that is, that is thing. everything is a category two issue. Everything we have to fight tooth and nail over. Everything we have to prove that we are right and they are wrong. Everything is a matter of what is true and what is untrue, what is right and what is wrong. Now, in certain situations, that is really helpful. There are some issues which are so fundamental that we want to wrestle for the truth. And it's not possibly simply to agree to disagree over. But there are many issues where that is just unnecessary. And unhelpful. We just need to learn that not every, everything really matters. And many things are not worth dividing, separating, arguing over. So, back to Paul and Barnabas. Here's my question. What category of disagreement is this? Uh, is, this a, is this a category one disagreement? Something that is inconsequential, that doesn't really matter, that they should just move on from? Is it category two, something that is right and wrong and they need to push for what is true and what is untrue? Well, I've kind of set it up. It's neither of those, is it? It's, it's neither of those two, because there is a third category of disagreement. And I think that's what we have here, and it's this. Wise and foolish. Let me give you another scenario. Michael, Scott and I get together. We're having a leaders meeting. We're sitting down and we're trying to decide, should we buy Grange Road Methodist Church? 
purely hypothetical situation. But we're, we're having this discussion. Like, should, should we do it? And, and as, we're, as we sit down, Michael kicks off by saying how great he thinks having the building will be. He believes that having a building will give us great opportunities for the gospel. We'll have more room for people to join us at our Sunday gatherings. We'll have space we can use during the week for CAP and for other meetings. We'll be able to rent out the space and make some money from it. And we'll be able to then use that money to do more gospel work. We'll be able to grow our presence in the community. More people will know about Grace Church. More people will engage with us. But then I, I'm sat on the other side of the room and I pipe up. And I say, I don't think we should buy the building. I think it will make us appear too churchy. You know, like, do we really want a church building? Like, why won't that just put people off? People who are suspicious of church, they won't want to walk through something that just looks like a church. If we're going to buy a building, we need to buy something more edgy. <laughs> or, ah, it's just going to be a millstone around our neck. You know, we're going to have to do, like, help us fix our roof campaigns and, you know, all that stuff that we hate that is like old traditional church just gets in the way of the stuff we want to be about. It's going to be a drain on money and people and time. And if something serious goes wrong with it, we're just going to be in all kinds of trouble. Now, what kind of decision is that? Well, it's clearly not inconsequential. It's not Pepsi or Coke, is it? it, it it's it will have a significant impact on us as a church. It will impact the things we do, the things that are possible, the things that are not possible. But it's also not a right and wrong issue. It's not a question of truth or morality. How we think about it doesn't have any impact on whether we know God, whether we're forgiven, whether we're accepted by him, whether we can live out the life he calls us to. It has no impact on any of those things. It's a different category of decision. It's not inconsequential. It's not right and wrong. It's wise or foolish. That's what we're trying to battle with there. What is the wise decision to make in that scenario? Now, the kind of decision which Paul and Barnabas disagree about is clearly a category three decision. And we know that because we're explicitly told it. So we're told that Paul does not consider it wise. That's the word he uses. He doesn't consider it wise to take John Mark with him. Notice he doesn't say, well, do what you like. I don't care. He says, no, I don't think it's a wise thing to do that. But nor does he say, it would be wrong for you to take John Mark with you. Because it's not a morality issue. It's not a question of right and wrong. It's a question of wise. Now, here's the question. How do you, how do you navigate those kind of disagreements? Well, first, I just want you to notice, these kind of disagreements do, can lead to some, like, some degree of splits and separations, just inevitably. And that's because they're mutually exclusive. To have one is to not have the other. So to take the example here, you cannot simultaneously take John Mark and not take John Mark. You have to do one or the other. You can't do them both. Just as you can't simultaneously buy the building and not buy the building. <laughs> Like you, you have to do one of them. So Barnabas thinks they should take John Mark with them. Paul thinks they shouldn't. Uh, and so because they disagree on what is the wise course of action, they go their separate ways. Barnabas takes John, John Mark with them. Paul goes off with Silas. Now, now, I just want to be clear. They don't now hate each other. You know, they don't go around saying, that Barnabas, can't believe he did that. 
They're not, they're not now enemies. They don't write each other off. No, one of them thinks one course is best. The other thinks another is. And so they go ahead and they do what they consider to be the wisest thing to do in that situation. Life is full of those kind of decisions. Should I buy this house or that house? Or no house? Should I move there or should I stay here? Should I change jobs? Should we sing old hymns or only modern songs? Decisions which matter, but are not right and wrong. And how do we navigate these? Here's what, I'm going I'm to give you a process that I think you should follow to try and navigate wise and unwise decisions. Here's, here's where we start. You battle with the issue. Because it's not inconsequential. It's not, uh, well, you think po uh, Pepsi, I think Coke. It's not that. You, you battle with it, you try and work out what is the wise thing to do in this situation. You don't flip a coin. Because <laughs> we're trying to find wisdom, we're trying to work out what is the right thing to do in this situation. So don't flip a coin, don't just go where your gut leads. Try and work it out. Read the Bible. Pray about it. Talk to other people. Maybe take the example of Paul and Barnabas here and talk to people who disagree with you. <laughs> you know, talk to the person who thinks that that is the unwise thing to do when you think it's the wise thing to do. So, so the first thing you've got to do when, you, when you're facing a, a, dis a disagreement or a decision that's about wisdom, not about right and wrong, right and wrong is straightforward. That's the wrong thing, don't do it. That's the right thing, do that. Inconsequential is straightforward. Who cares? Do what you want, flip a coin, no one cares. The difficult stuff is this middle stuff, wise or unwise. So battle with it. Try and work out what is the wise course of action here. Second thing you need to do, after you've battled with it, you have to make a decision. At some point, you have to do something. And the danger is that we don't do something because with wise and unwise decisions, you never feel you have enough information. You always wish you just knew absolutely which one was wise and which one was foolish because you want it to be a right-wrong situation. You think, if I just work at it long enough, it'll be absolutely clear what the right course of action here is. But it won't be because it's, a, it's not a right or wrong issue. It's a wise or unwise decision. So at some point, after you've battled with it, after you've thought about it, you actually have to make a decision. You have to do whatever it is you've come to the decision is wise. Paul has to go, I don't think it's wise to go with John Mark, so I'm going to go off this way. And Barnabas has to say, I think it's wise to take John Mark with me, so I'm going to go off this way. Second thing, you've got to make a decision. So battle with it first, then make a decision. And here's the third thing. Don't then turn it into a right and wrong issue. Don't antagonize or alienate people because of it. I think human beings, we're tribal. And we tend to vilify people who think differently to us. We can, we can see this all the time. We can see it in churches all the time. We do it about so many things. Music. We vilify people. We're like, oh, can you believe that they sing those modern songs, they're so, they're so new and so trashy and they've got no sense of history and you know, they're just abandoning their Christian past. We vilify people who do something different. Or we, or we, um, we antagonize and feel separate to people who have a different preaching style. You know, they stand up and we go, oh, they're just too emotional and over the top. You know, they're just trying to stir people up. They're not really doing it properly. And, and we, we vilify them. We make them out as the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're just making a different decision about what they think the best way to communicate the gospel is. 
We do it about evangelism. Let me give you, let me give you a prime example. We, we vilify those people who knock on people's doors and stand on the ramps. But that's a wisdom decision. I mean, as long as they're actually preaching the gospel, which lots of them aren't. <laughs> but as long as they're actually preaching the gospel, that is a, that's just a wisdom decision about what is the best way to communicate the gospel to people who don't know it. It's not what we do. We don't think that's a wise course of action. We don't think that's the best way to declare the good news of Jesus. But if they do think that, that's okay. They're not the enemy. They've just reached a different decision about what, about what a wise way to share the gospel with people is. Now, so we don't vilify them, but they do mean that we can't really work together in some areas. Because you can't simultaneously like knock on people's doors and not knock on people's doors. You do one or the other. You know, you can't you can't you can't necessarily work with them, but they're not the enemy. I think the reason why when you read this account in Acts 15 we feel a bit dissatisfied with it is because we want to know who was right and who was wrong. Did Paul have it right or did Barnabas have it right? Should they have taken John Mark or not? We're just desperate to know the answer to that question but we're deliberately not told because it's not that kind of decision. They both thought different things were wise and unwise, so they made different decisions. It was a judgment call. Now, the, th- the truth is we are, individually, we're desperate to be right. We love being right. And we love everyone to know we were right. But the, the downside of that is it means that we often really want other people to be wrong. And we want to show that other people are wrong so that we can seem right. But the reality is that sometimes we both struggle to work out what is a wise decision in a given circumstance. We've reached different conclusions and we will never know who was right and who was wrong because there was no right and wrong to begin with. You'll just never know. There is no answer to the question. So what do you do when you find yourself in that situation? Okay, you've battled with a decision. Maybe right now, here this afternoon, you're battling with a decision. That is this category. It's about what's wise and what's foolish. You're battling with it. You're trying to work it out. And maybe you've battled with it for a long time. And you reach a decision. And you talk to people and you realize that they don't see it the same way. They don't think the wise course of action is the way that you think the wise course of action is. In fact, they, they think something else is wise. Uh, and you work through it uh, and you, you carry on chatting about it. But the reality is you both carry on with those opinions about what is wise and what is unwise. And it leads to a sharp disagreement. It's what we're told happened between Paul and Barnabas. There's a sharp disagreement between you and this other person. My question is, how do you tend to respond when that happens? How do you tend to respond when you disagree with someone about something and you can't agree? You can't reach an agreement on it. And it leads to conflict. And it leads to disagreements. It leads to you know, that nasty feeling in the air. You start trying to avoid the person. How do you react when that happens? What, what, do you temp- what are you tempted to do? Here's what I want to suggest. If you're anything like me, aren't you tempted to just withdraw from people? Just full stop. Like people are just too much like hard work. You know, I, I, all I want to do is get in my lounge with a tub of ice cream and a Netflix box set, and I just want to sit down and I just want to watch that for a while and not have to worry about all these people who don't agree with me because they're all idiots. No, but you know, like, that's how we think. We want to retreat inside our house. And this is why I loved so much Acts 16, those verses that I read to you. Because it's just not what Paul does at all. Paul doesn't go, oh, that thing with Barnabas didn't work. 
Maybe I should just go it alone. He doesn't stop investing in people, working with people, getting close to people. First, he finds a new travel companion, Silas. And then in Lystra, he comes across this guy called Timothy. And as he gets to know him, as he hears about him, he thinks, he'd be a great person to work with. Maybe I could work with him. So he brings Timothy along too. He doesn't think, oh, well, I tried working with someone before and it didn't really work, so I should probably just go it alone from now on. He doesn't think, oh, I tried working with people, but that didn't really work, so maybe I just need to pack it in. Maybe I'm not cut out for this church working to, like, malarkey because I just can't get along with people. He doesn't do that. He just gets back on the horse and just goes, I'm going to go again. I'm going to find some more people. I'm going to start working with them. Paul doesn't give up on people because things with Barnabas had been hard and maybe a bit messy at the end. He keeps investing in and working with people. And because of that, the gospel continues to spread. Paul and Barnabas go their separate ways. And then in verse 41, we are told that the churches are strengthened again. He's like, that shouldn't be what happens. The leaders have just had a massive argument. How come that results in the churches being strengthened? Well, I mean, we don't exactly know, but we can guess that part of the answer to that is because where you were going to have one group of people going out to support churches, you now have two groups of people. Barnabas has gone one, one place, Paul and Silas have gone another place, you've got twice as many people going and strengthening the churches. So the churches continue to be strengthened. And then, in verse 5 of 16, we're told that the churches are strengthened in their faith and grew daily in their numbers. Just, just notice in your head how surprising that, that is. We've just had all the opposition of chapter 14, and then we've had all the division and conflict and disruption of chapter 15, and what happens? The gospel goes forward. Churches are still strengthened. People come to hear about and know Jesus for themselves. And more than that, even with the relationships we read about here, there is hope. What I love is if you read the letter um, that Paul writes in 2 Timothy, he says to Timothy, oh, I want you to bring... Mark with you to comfort me because he's been helpful to my ministry. It's amazing. 20, 30 years on, Paul does not think this about Mark. 20, 30 years on, Paul thinks Mark is a great guy who I want to come with me and I want to help me because he's been so helpful in my ministry. Paul doesn't just write Mark off for good, say, well, you failed us there, no hope for you. There's hope even for the relationships. I'm going to wrap it up here. We come to the end of this section in Acts. And what have we seen? This is what you've seen. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you may well have like missed the wood for the trees or whatever the saying is. You, you, you might have just like lost the overall flow. This is what we've seen. We've seen unbelievable, incredible joys. We've seen miracles. You know, people who couldn't walk could walk again. People, we've seen miracles. We've seen sermons preached. We've seen lives changed. We've seen churches formed. We've seen new relationships established. We've been, seen people coming to know Jesus for the first time. What could be better or more exciting than that? But we've also seen that mixed in with this whole host of messy, difficult situations. Opposition from, a, opposition from a world which hates Christianity and wants to see it fail. Messy relationships, people struggling to get along, leaders disagreeing, genuine pain and sorrow. That is the story of Acts 12 to 15. That's the story we've been looking at over these last few weeks. And that is the story of Grace Church. So welcome to Grace Church. That's what you're going to see. A place where you will experience unbelievable joys as we grow in our love of Jesus, as we experience his forgiveness, 
and comfort and power and new life. As we find new relationships built. As we see people come to know Jesus for the first time. But also a place where mixing with all of that, there will be opposition and disagreements and struggles and sorrows. Which we'll just need to navigate. Let's pray that we would navigate those well and see the churches strengthened and people coming to find new life for themselves.